We're going to uh, pick up again with the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it dawned on me that uh, if, if someone is perhaps not certain exactly what that is, that it, it's a confession <clears throat> as one among several documents written by uh, a group of, of men in England who met essentially from about 1642 to 1650, somewhere in that range, a number of years, and developed uh, directories of worship. They directed, uh, they developed the larger catechism, the shorter catechism, and uh, arguably the, the great document of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which forms uh, the secondary standards of uh, Reformed churches all around the world is why we study this document as, as a wonderful summary of important uh, Christian truth. <clears throat> and tonight, I want to begin by going backward a little bit. Uh, last week, for any of you who were here, you know I had about 40 hours and attempted to give it to you in 40 minutes, and that didn't work so well. Uh, but I did run out of time, but there's a couple of, of statements that I do not want to uh, pass by. We'll get to the next chapter in the confession, uh, but I do want to, uh, to look at the very last paragraph, the sixth paragraph of chapter 24. Chapter 24 of the confession is the chapter of marriage and divorce. I've put two handouts on your tables. Uh, one of them is this 24th chapter, 6th paragraph. The other one is a front and back handout for the 25th chapter, which we'll get to shortly. Uh, but again, I think this is such important material uh, that I wanted to get it to you again. The 6th the paragraph is, is on the screen uh, from chapter 24 of Marriage and Divorce. And that's the one that, that uh, brings up an extremely difficult issue to deal with. As you see, it says, although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Uh, we saw that last week. I touched on it briefly and mentioned some of the, the great difficulties. But I wanted to touch on these three points that I've got on your handout. Uh, it is due to the corruption, that is the sin, of man that he is, quote, apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage. Now, we see that on a daily basis here in our own culture. As cultures move further and further away from the truth, this always happens. And the way the confession is, is wording it there, uh, it's, it's uh, mankind will seek ways uh, to uh, indeed it, to study arguments to put asunder, to, to unbiblically dissolve those whom God hath joined together. I've given you a quote there from Chad Van Dixhorn uh, to the effect that adultery and desertion are some of the sorest trials ever to be endured by human beings. 
adultery and desertion and a host of other sinful desires and goes lead man tragically to study arguments to put asunder marriages. It's a criminal thing that, that uh, goes on, but we, we nonetheless are sinful people and, and many, many people uh, will seek ways to dissolve marriages. Now, the second point, and I mentioned this last week, willful desertion, according to this paragraph, is in fact a biblical reason for divorce. Now, what I brought up last week, uh, what Paul is assuming here is a marriage between two unbelievers in which one becomes a believer, taken primarily from that passage there, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 16. One becomes a believer, and then questions arise. Uh, So while willful desertion is indeed a legitimate uh, reason to dissolve a marriage, look at the however under point two. This is a consideration only when such desertion, in the words of the confession, quote, can no way be remedied by the church or the civil magistrate. In other words, declaring desertion in a marriage is decidedly not a determination left to the discretion of the parties alone, but must be established only after earnest and concerted prayer and effort by the church. The reason I wanted to come back to this is... uh, I mentioned the difficulty in determining what desertion means. Most people assume it means physically to desert. Uh, One party of the marriage simply disappears, and and they're no longer living under the same roof, uh, no longer having any association whatsoever. Well, that certainly would be desertion. But what normally comes into the church courts is a situation where someone says, my spouse has deserted me even though he or she is still physically with me. And you wonder, what in the world, uh, how could that be? Well, it can be several ways, uh, but one of them, of course, would be uh, physical abuse. Some people want to then take that under the first clause that we looked at in point one, where you study ways to dissolve marriages that you don't want to be in. Some people will say emotional desertion. Uh, Some people will come up with all kinds of of reasons, and that's why I want to stress in point two, this is not something that is in your control. God has put you together. Uh, God has put you together, and when you have problems, which you will, because, again, marriage is putting two sinners under one roof, reconcile them. Come back to the church and reconcile these difficulties. Uh, it is not something that will be left to you. It has to be a, an issue if you, uh, if you know someone who feels that there has been some kind of desertion, whether physical or otherwise, that is something that can only be determined by the church. The reason I emphasize the church and not the civil magistrate is because the civil magistrate uh, isn't functioning off biblical principle. Uh, the civil magistrate, for instance, in the state of South Carolina, when divorces take place, I think you have to live within the state for a, a period of a, at least a year. Uh, that is not a good biblical solution, separating people for the term of a year while they wait on, an, on a divorce to become uh, official. That is not uh, going to help the marriage. Uh, so, again, I just simply want to emphasize that that particular reason 
as indeed adultery also. Those things will be adjudicated by the church courts. The church court begins with the local church session. Now, with that downer note, I want to leave you on something that is so incredibly positive, I had to leave it with you on a handout, and that's point number three. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 14 and 16, let me read that. <clears throat> that's, that's too important. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 14 and 16 say this. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband, it, it's talking about, let me start with verse 12. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Again, Paul is assuming here two people marry, they're unbelievers. The husband becomes a believer. Now he's sitting there in a marriage with a, a wife who is an unbeliever. And what Paul is saying, the husband should not divorce her for, uh, verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, so he's just reversing that, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For, here's verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That thought in 1 Corinthians 7 is, um, is a mysterious gem that is hidden in that chapter. Uh, these verses, I say there in note three, these verses speak to a mysterious, like, glorious truth of our covenantal God. The same hope that extends to the baptism of covenant children in our families exists within our marriages. And in the words of John Murray, and I, I hope you will take this home and, and place it someplace in your heart, Marriage may be regarded as an avenue along which the means of grace travel. I love that sentence. I love that thought. Even if two spouses, if for whatever reason, uh, especially with two unbelievers and one becomes a believer and you say, well, now I'm unequally yoked. No, you're not unequally yoked because, in the words of Murray, an avenue along which the means of grace may travel is what that marriage would become. And the example set by the believing husband or wife under those situations may bring grace. God may bring grace through that believer that will lead her husband or his wife to glory and to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I go on there. The believer who actually finds himself in a mixed marital relationship is given the assurance that grace is more potent than nature, that greater is he who is in the believer than he that is in the world. That is, that, that is a great hope for all marriage, and I hope uh, we, will, we will go accordingly and understand them to be that way and, and give hope. If you happen to have friends, for instance, who come to you and they're struggling with that kind of scenario, uh, tell them 
that, that the existence of that marital bond may be that avenue down which the Lord will move his grace and bless many people. Now we're going to move from, from that uh, to this uh, 25th chapter of the confession, which is entitled <clears throat> Of the Church. Uh, there are six paragraphs in it. And I, before I get to paragraph one, what I want to do is again call your attention to the handout on this particular chapter, chapter 25. The handout at the, on the back side of it, it concludes with an overview of chapter 25. I want to reflect on that before we get there, and it will be obvious why when we look at this. I'm, I'm referencing primarily at this point a book by a man named Robert Lethem. Uh, this, is, this is the book. It's called The Westminster Assembly, Reading Its Theology in Historical Context. I find this book incredibly useful and insightful. Uh, but what uh, Lethem is, is uh, desirous of pointing to here is, is something that's been acknowledged by many people over the years. Uh, in this book, uh, quoting Lethem, he says, in both the confession and the larger catechism, the church is considered in connection with the order of salvation, the ordo salutis, and the work of Christ. This stress on the church as the place where salvation is to be found is at the heart of the historic Christian faith. Now, what he means by that sentence is this notion of an ordo salutis, an order of salvation. How does a person normally become saved? We've talked about uh, that before. There are are different models of that. I like the eight-step model, but you go through through a... a, a, um, regeneration, you have an effectual call, then regeneration, your heart is regenerated, it's changed, Ezekiel 36, the heart of stone is removed, Holy Spirit gives me a heart of flesh, I'm regenerated, and uh, you go through the faith, repentance, and uh, justification, and adoption, and sanctification, and all of these steps along the way to becoming a Christian. What left them is calling our attention to is that it's the church of Jesus Christ. It's the gathering of God's people through which that process normally works. He goes on uh, in this, in this, uh, these few words that I've, I've left in your handout here at John Calvin's institutes, which also unites the church and the sacraments is a focal point in book four uh, Calvin refers approvingly to a man named Cyprian. Now, Cyprian was a guy that lived a long, long time ago, roughly between 200 and 258 A.D. Cyprian said, one cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. That's another good quote that's, I think, worthy of memorization. That's one reason why chapter 25 in the confession begins a seven-chapter grouping So what we're about to open here in chapter 25 is the first of seven consecutive chapters in the Westminster Confession of Faith that are going to uh, amplify the church of Jesus Christ and how it is that that church is, in fact, the centerpiece of how salvation will normally be carried to an individual. The last sentence of that 
uh, paragraph there. This is one reason why it begins these, this concentration upon the church, its sacraments, its censures, its synods, and its councils. And I've also given you uh, the larger catechism question numbers that also pertain to this issue. So we are now getting to a, a package, if you will, within the Westminster Confession, uh, what Lethem is pointing us to and what many people have over the centuries is that the Westminster Confession has a logic behind it. Uh, it's not just uh, 33 or so chapters of, of randomly placed thoughts and subjects. There is a way that it's moving, and we're on the cusp of, of coming to uh, a very, very exciting part of it. Final paragraph on your handout. As we read through chapter 25, consider a significant variation in broader evangelicals' focus upon the individual and his faith in abstraction from the church. What, I'm, what I want you to understand there is what we're seeing in our own culture is a push toward an individualism, a push away from the corporate church. Uh, so many of the churches uh, that dot the landscape now are these mega churches, these, these giant things uh, that that um, are not associated. One of the one of the uh, biblical glories to me that that is followed in Presbyterianism is the structure of having a local church associated with a, a gathering of local churches called a presbytery, which itself is associated with all the gatherings of presbyteries in the general assembly. Uh, so you have this uh, this organization rather than running out as a maverick church. This church uh, functions within a presbytery, which functions within our general assembly. Uh, so it is the gospel message penned by the apostles and prophets. That is what the church is in the Bible that brings an individual to saving faith, and the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. So emphasis on the church is what we come to as we get to this 25th chapter entitled, Of the Church. Again, six paragraphs, just as we saw last week. I'll read the first one. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. The key word in that paragraph is invisible. What uh, the confession is going to do in these uh, next couple of chapters is see and present the church as the invisible church as well as the visible church. It's beginning with invisible. So he says uh, Catholic or universal. That's all the word Catholic means. It has nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. It simply means universal. The universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect, those people that are genuinely Christian, those people whose hearts have been changed. You see the references that are placed underneath that particular paragraph by the assembly, this notion of the elect, uh, we could go to many different passages of Scripture. I want to read you <clears throat> just uh, from the opening of the book of Ephesians. And as I go through uh, this, this rather lengthy introduction of Paul's to the book in Ephesus, I want you to be listening for the word elect or predestined 
as we go through this. Beginning in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's a very dramatic statement. He chose us before the foundation of the world. If you are a Christian today, you were chosen by God before you were ever created, before this world was ever created. He continues there in verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is, in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Uh, that is a magisterial uh, piece of scripture that speaks to what this first paragraph is hinting at. This first paragraph is talking about the elect, which it calls the invisible church, the church which cannot be seen. Why? Why is it invisible? It's invisible because only God can look on the heart. Our earthly emphasis resides on things that can be seen, and that, not surprisingly, is called the visible church. That's where we come in paragraph two of this chapter, which reads this way. The visible church, as opposed to the invisible, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, that is not confined to one nation as before under the law, The visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, every one of those clauses, you see all of the uh, scripture passages that the assembly gathered as evidence for their thoughts in that paragraph. But again, we're back to this notion of a visible church. That is the church that you and I see. The gathering of God's people on any given Sunday in any church anywhere on planet earth consists, as it says in that paragraph, of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion. So that is how one gets into the visible church. 
you profess your faith in the true religion. Those many, many uh, passages that are alluded to there, you can uh, can look them up. They are, they're divided into each one of the main clauses of this of this paragraph, and I'm not going to through, go through all of them. <clears throat> but the first opening salvo is those who profess the true religion and of their children. That's an important aspect of reform thinking and covenantal thinking. That's why we baptize children, among other things, because the blessing comes to Abraham and his offspring. And passages uh, where Paul, for instance, or Peter will be in Cornelius' house and baptize Cornelius' based on his profession of faith and those members of the household. Um, this sort of thing is, uh, is what it means by and of their children. And is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ the house and family of God. And then it concludes with a very fascinating statement, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now that last clause of this paragraph, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation, comes from just the last verse noted, the Acts 2 passage. Uh, Acts 2 should uh, maybe run some flags up up the poles. In in Acts chapter 2, you're in Pentecost, the event at which the Holy Spirit descends. And Peter is is addressing uh, the the people who have gathered there. Acts chapter 2, you could really pick up meaningfully with, um, um, I'm going to go down to 42 Verse 42, Peter is preaching his sermon on Pentecost, and at the beginning of verse 42, there is a heading for what comes next, which is where they're pulling this phrase, no ordinary possibility of salvation. The heading says the fellowship of believers. In other words, the church. What what do you gain by coming to a church? What do you gain by being part of a church? Here's what uh, Luke says here in Acts Chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, exactly what we've been doing tonight. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Koinonia. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's a great description of the behavior of an active church and why it is that from the church, there is, without it, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation because all of those things, all of those interactivities that go on build each other up. All of us are sinful people. All of us have weak points. All of us have needs. All of us have things that we can't figure out. But together we become stronger because I can go to any of you and share these things and have you pray with and for me. 
You can do the same with, with any of the other folks here. So the fellowship of believers is a very good uh, description, I think, of, of the, among other things, the primary, uh, perhaps uh, tangential benefit of having Jesus Christ presented through the church. And that's why the confession says out of that, out of the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. I want to look at that word profess again in that opening salvo paragraph two. Visible church, those that can be seen and observed. You remember the invisible church, I can't see it. I don't know whose hearts are real. I don't know whose statement of faith and uh, that sort of thing is legitimate. I don't know who, who God knows, only God knows, only God can look at the heart. But the visible church, those, all those who profess, that is what we see and observe throughout the world, and that is the visible church. It's a key word. But professions of faith may be true and genuine, or they may be false and spurious. We hear words and observe actions, but we can be deceived. We can fail to recognize true faith. So God alone looks on the heart. So the invisible church is the one God knows of, and the visible church is the one you and I deal with. Now, the problem is falling too heavily on either side of that equation will lead to bad things. And that has been done in the history of the church, is certainly being done today. I'm going to draw now on a book called The Church. Uh, Ed Clowney, fabulous book. He brings up an interesting point. He says, those who wish to focus almost exclusively on the invisible church, so you're only focusing on the elect, have used that emphasis to give little or no concern for the unity, holiness, Catholicity, and even the apostolicity of the church. Everything we just read, the person who is focusing only on the elect, even though he or she has no way to know who these people are, is going to be one who tends to ignore structure, leadership, authority, issues of governance, and those kinds of things. What happens then are business types. Uh, managerial gurus who are used to, to running business models throughout the world, they will come in and apply those to the church, run roughshod over its form and structure, put in place what they call management, modern managerial methodologies, and lead to subsequent disaster. I distinctly remember sitting in a presbytery meeting when a man wasn't in... Uh, in uh, this presbytery, a man came in and, and told all of us, he said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I, we've got this new partnership with Google. I thought, well, this can't go too positive. We got this partnership with Google and they're going to loan us technology so that we can find out within a five mile radius of the church, we can find out everything. We, I can give you their bank accounts. I can give you their, their, how many cars they have, what kind of cars they drive. I can give you what schools their children attend. I can give you how much money they've got in their bank account. I, uh, we couldn't find the door fast enough to, uh, to get that individual out. Uh, but that is exactly what happens when people will focus only on end product and counting noses as opposed to letting the Bible lead the way to how an, a church should be organized, structured, and run. Now, the other 
side of the coin is just as bad. Those who focus inordinately on the visible church, that is how many people have we got each day, tend to erase the reality of God's electing and sovereign purposes for the church. Those kind of churches often move toward establishing extra biblical aspects of conversion, perhaps. Uh, We want to make sure you're elect. So give me your statement of faith. There have been times in church history, for instance, when the degree to which you cried when you were giving your profession of faith was the, that litmus test that let you in the church or not. If you didn't evince convicting uh, sadness and, and uh, so forth over your sin and you didn't uh, convince people that you really, really are the real, the real deal, uh, you were not let in. Uh, looking only at the visible church can go in another direction. It can make it easy believism so that all we want to do are just be increasing in numbers. Uh, We don't really care whether you're really a Christian or not. We just want to look good in the eyes of the public. That can lead to seeker-sensitive churches. That can lead uh, to churches that that are hardly churches at all because they really want numbers. So they become entertainment centers. They become churches that are aware of the culture and want to look like the culture in order on the theory that in order they can attract people uh, that way. Uh, So you've got to be careful. All of these things simply scream at us to get back to the scriptures where the truth resides. Uh, The church on earth is important. This is why among several considerations, that paragraph ends with that clause out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, the Westminster Divines were perfectly aware of the fact that some people come to the Lord uh, away from the church. The thief on the cross is a perfect example of such a person. The thief on the cross, I assume, if he ever spent any time in a church or a temple or a synagogue or whatever, uh, they weren't meaningful days and they weren't uh, aspects of his life that were important to him. But that man became a genuine believer mere minutes or hours before He was in the Lord's arms in paradise. So the Westminster Assembly is aware of that. But what this means, among other things, uh, is church membership is important. That's another aspect that feeds into this notion of visible and invisible churches. Uh, Going back to Chad Van Dixhorn, who says this, People who claim to be believers and refuse to join the church in the face of clear biblical instruction and providential opportunity to do so, should deeply worry us. I have known many people like that uh, over the space of years who will attend and attend and attend and attend, but never ever join the church. They're like people, Van Dixhorn says, who say they are in love but refuse to get married. Usually they want the privileges of the relationship without the accompanying responsibilities. Their refusal to publicly commit to Christ's church cast doubt on the genuineness of their devotion to Jesus Christ himself. The church, in other words, is not something to be played with, to be toyed with. Church membership is there for a very, very good reason, and it puts together the visible church through which all of those things function. That leads us to the third paragraph. The third paragraph logically falls from the first two that says this, unto this Catholic visible church, 
Christ has given the ministry, the oracles, and the ordinances of God. For what end? For the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. Now, you may recall when I was talking about the order of salvation, that word effectual, there has to be an effectual calling. There has to be some time in my life when I am, all of a sudden I start listening. Uh, Maybe I've been going to church. My parents took me to church day after day, church. I I wasn't listening. I never, I just come out and, and have not heard a thing. There will be a time for the true believer when all of a sudden, or perhaps even gradually, can happen gradually, but it becomes effectual. I become aware that, hey, I'm listening to truth. I'm listening to something that I need. I'm listening to something that describes me, and I'm beginning to understand that I am the sinner in this picture, and I need what I'm hearing from church. And this third paragraph ends by saying the presence of Jesus Christ and the Spirit given to the church Make these means of ministry effectual. And thank the Lord for that. It means you don't have to have brilliant teachers. You don't have to have any of that. It is the movement of the Holy Spirit and the presence of Jesus Christ in his church that are going to make these things effectual. Now, some important truths flow out of this. Because of the realities of the visible church, And our humanity, meaning we're not omniscient, it's not surprising that, quote, unto this Catholic visible church, Christ has given. What's he given? He's given the ministry. He's given oracles. He's given the ordinances of God. All of those things that constitute the marks of the church, the preaching of the word, prayer, the affecting of discipline, of church discipline within the body. All of these things, ministries, oracles, ordinances of God. For what end? For the gathering and perfecting of the saints. So he will get his elect across the finish line. God works through means. He could, if, if God had wanted, he could just have created the elect and the unelect are over here. And he says, okay, come on with me. It's ready. I'm taking you to heaven with me now. But he doesn't do that. He, we are all living our lives to whatever degree we have uh, in his purpose for us. And there are various means that God will use. Maybe it's a Sunday school teacher when we're little. Uh, maybe it's a, it's a teacher in a, in a public school someplace. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's uh, a friend, a school friend on the playground. It can be anything and a host of things over time that convict us, that make this call effectual to us and start us down the road to true Christianity. And of course, guaranteed because of the presence of, of Christ and the Holy Spirit. I want to read one other passage out of the book of Ephesians. This one Ephesians chapter 4, this is one of the passages that the assembly uh, was led to highlight. I'm going to begin in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 11. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What, an, what a beautiful, again, another summary of what the church is going to look like. And that summarizes what we've seen in paragraphs 1, 2, and 3. The apostles, the prophets, the word itself, all of these things God has given uh, to, to ministers, to, to those who are trained and all of that sort of thing, who are gifted to, uh, to take this book and explain it to all of us who need to hear it and understand it. I'll just uh, take one more of these, of these passages called upon here. This one from 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul, Paul, what a, all of the letters of Paul are, are so, so rich in describing the church. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 27. This is how this particular 12th chapter concludes. Paul says, now you are the body of Christ and individually you are members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Uh, Again, very similar to the passage in Ephesians in certain ways, but the point being that the church of Jesus Christ is built by God to have all of these gifts. Every single one of you has at least one gift, and my suspicion is multiple gifts that you need to be exercising in this particular church because you have been gathered here by God providentially to be here at this point in time because all of us need the gifts you bring to the table. Paul says, are all teachers? No. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. It means that you can do something else. And it doesn't have to be in any kind of spotlight or anything like that. Uh, The simple giving of a cup of water to someone who needs it, who is thirsty at the moment, is a fabulous gift of God that you may have. And you may uh, want to exercise that. Uh, So all of these things are put together divinely to create what we know of as the visible local church. And every local church is a part of the worldwide visible church, whether this church might uh, be in Haiti. You see the difficulty that Octavius and his family are dealing with. Uh, you, You go to another culture and you're going to have other difficulties. You go in this culture. And you see a different set of difficulties. But again, we are all put together. God is aware of these. And it's uh, an effort to bring about perfection of the membership and uh, leading toward uh, the uh, maximization of our Christian lives. 
That leads us to the fourth paragraph. The confession says, this Catholic church, this, this universal church, has been sometimes more and sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure. According to the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. So uh, this Catholic universal church has been more or less evident throughout history. You remember Elijah. Elijah, (laughs) here's a quote from uh, Brother Elijah. He says, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. He's he's talking to God. Elijah has just um, made mincemeat out of the prophets of Baal, but within a a very short amount of time, he's, he's run and he's in a cave and he's saying, Uh, These people have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, Elijah, even I only am left. He's he's praying up to God. He says, I'm it. I'm I'm here in this cave, and I'm the last one. I am only am left. And they're seeking my life to take it away. That's 1 Kings chapter 19, second part of verse 10. Or our own lives. The point of of this passage, the church, according to paragraph four, is more or less evident, more or less visible. Think of the seven churches that that, uh, open the book of Revelation, chapters two and three of Revelation. John is writing to those seven churches, not a single one of them still exists. Islam comes through that part of the world in a 600 somewhere and takes over and still has a firm grip on it. And while there are Christian mission churches there, thankfully, those particular seven churches ceased to exist. Sometimes the church ebbs, sometimes it flows. It's a moving target. But perhaps even more unsettling, that paragraph goes on to say, even particular churches are more or less pure according to the devotion to God's word, which drives them in their various tasks of being a true church to begin with. That leads us to the fifth paragraph. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. Not surprising, this fifth paragraph, we're all sinful people. So there is no such thing as a perfect church. No perfect visible church on earth. And that's how this fifth paragraph opens very ominously, if you will. It's possible for a specific church of Jesus Christ to so degenerate that it becomes what the assembly called a synagogue of Satan. Several observations come from that. First, I don't want to water that down. I think it's an absolutely accurate statement. Each church on earth exists on a continuum of purity and impurity, and none are perfect. We don't ever get it right completely. 
A synagogue of Satan does not have to be a center for devil worship. That's the words, uh, these words, again, are written in the middle of 1600s. Today, many people would read synagogue of Satan and you would assume some sort of uh, devil worship or, or animism or, or something very extreme. It doesn't have to be that way. I would suggest that when a church or group of churches intentionally decides to abandon total allegiance to Scripture, it has embarked and made great strides toward being exactly that, a synagogue of Satan. They may not go all the way. They may, they may cover uh, what they're doing with, with very um, beautiful and uh, maybe the buildings look great. Uh, maybe the services that they render to the body are enjoyable and pleasurable to be around. Entertainment centers, for instance. But the standard is Scripture and Scripture alone. And any time a church starts messing around with the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, that church is headed toward becoming a synagogue of Satan. There is the truth and there are lies. The truth resides in the word when the church starts fumbling around, however innocently, however carefully. I'm thinking about the early 1900s in the United States of America when the largest Presbyterian denomination started wavering on Scripture, started saying, well, you know, it contains truth. There's some truth in it. But it's up to us to decide what's really true and what's maybe not quite so true. Anytime you inject yourself that way, uh, you are headed uh, toward the wrong end of that continuum, toward immaturity or impurity, rather. Satan is the father of lies, scriptures, truth. Any volitional and or unintentional deviation from truth is a move toward lies. Secondly, the statement is not intended even though we may assume that, thinking of the Westminster Confession, it's not intended as some sort of reference to the Roman Catholic Church per se, though there is a great deviation from Scripture within Roman Catholicism. The assembly very pointedly acknowledged the fact that if a person were baptized in a Roman Catholic Church, he or she did not have to be rebaptized. It recognized the baptism performed in a Roman Catholic church. The confession drew largely upon the writings of, of, of men who had written from basically one or 200 AD forward, many of whom were Catholics. And it recognized the clarity and the wisdom that some of those writings brought to the table. So that's, that phrase, synagogue of Satan, is not necessarily uh, talking about the Roman Catholic church. However, Having said that, the assembly did have a thing or two to say about the Pope. And that leads us to the final paragraph here, paragraph six. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, period. You may have noticed they didn't put many periods in these paragraphs. Uh, They put colons, they put semicolons, they put a lot of things. They rarely have a period. This one is a demonstrative definitive statement. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. The problem, as I 
um, I mentioned this, I've alluded to the notion of getting away from Scripture. When, when, when a body of believers believes that a certain human being can become semi-divine, uh, when a body of believers thinks that the traditions of the church and the wisdom that comes from gatherings of church bishops or whomever take precedence over the written word of God, those are churches moving toward the synagogues of Satan, and those are things that characterize the Roman Catholic Church. The concluding paragraph here that, that ends the way uh, you see it behind me on the screen wasn't what they wrote. Let me read you what they extended that paragraph to say. When the assembly was written and completed, this paragraph said, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, talking about the Pope, that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. That's a pretty dramatic statement. Uh, so much so that even shortly after the assembly, uh, when the young uh, ministers-to-be would come before presbyteries and exams, they were allowed to take exception to that wording, and with good reason. That wording, frankly, is not biblical. The Bible does not call the Pope the Antichrist. A lot of people, Chad Van Dixhorn and others who have studied the assembly, believe that part of that has to do with the belief in that part of, of time in England that the end of the world was near. And they were seeing the Antichrist uh, in the Pope and so on and so forth. Chad Van Dixhorn again summarizes, I think, well. Here's what he says, quote, The word of God does not identify the Pope as the Antichrist, nor does it conclusively suggest that there is one person or position that the Antichrist occupies. Nor does the Apostle John consider the Antichrist to be merely a person or position of the future. Although subsequent Presbyterians were in full sympathy with the assembly's dismay at the blasphemous claims of the papacy, agreed with the assembly that such departures from the truth of Scripture are, pre are predicted in Scripture and heard in them dangerous echoes of the devil's own deceptions, yet many were not willing to interpret these passages and these names as references to the papacy. And that particular addition to what you read behind me was struck down by the American Presbyterian Church in 1903. And since that date, that, that uh, part of that uh, paragraph has not appeared in copies in American churches of the Westminster Assembly. Uh, now, what, what we've seen here, again, drop back a little bit and keep the forest in view. This is the first of seven consecutive chapters that's going to cover the Church of Jesus Christ. And this, I think, is a magisterial beginning. The invisible church, the elect, which God sees and will be in heaven. The visible church, with both, which both contains elect, true believers, and probably non-elect. Those who are, who've, who've taken vows and, and made statements and so forth, but perhaps uh, fallaciously for one reason or another. Most tragically of all, who happen to be in a church, one of those churches that is moving away from Scripture and therefore has a purpose of making its members feel good about themselves. It's easy to draw a crowd if you say, come to the church and you'll be rich. 
If you've got a problem, a physical problem, God's going to heal you. Uh, if you've got this, that, or the other, that's not what Scripture says. Uh, decidedly not what Scripture says. Much more difficult is to go into pulpits and behind podiums and tell you that you're a sinner and you're going to hell unless you have faith in Jesus Christ. So this, this chapter has outlined the fact that this thing we call the visible church, this thing that we're privileged to be a part of, has been given the ordinances of God, has been given prayer, has been given the preaching of the word, has been given the discipline of the word in order to perfect us, in order to grow us so that we're no longer children being tossed to and fro by the winds. We're no longer children. We're no longer those who have to eat milk. We can take meat, the meat of the word. And we're going to move on in the confession from this point to get to, uh, we'll get into the sacraments, we'll get into a chapter on baptism, a chapter on the Lord's Supper, we'll get into the synods and councils of the church, we'll get into all kinds of things. This is, this is how the confession, it doesn't end with these chapters, it has a couple more at the end of this grouping on the church that have to do with life and death and the eternal. So it's pretty much going to wrap up everything by the summation after it's, it's led with 24 preceding chapters to get us to this point, is saying, how do all those 24 chapters come together? They come together in the thing called the church of Jesus Christ. And that church is, is ruled by Jesus. He is the head of it, and his word is the truth of it. And if we uh, are fortunate enough, as I f- frankly think we are in this particular local church, uh, let's roll our sleeves up and get busy. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that uh, as we read these brief statements, brief statements that took several years of very, very intelligent, biblically-minded people to put together. Every single word uh, has gravitas behind it, but every single word leads us back to your word, which is true truth, and we are so grateful that we have it here at Second Presbyterian. Father, may that never change. May there never be a man behind any podium, behind any pulpit in this church that would ever even be led to say something that he is not convicted is an utterly biblical thought and something that needs to be shared with all of God's children. We are all humble before you. We're all sinners before you, Father, but we are sinners saved by your grace. And we are so thankful for the church of Jesus Christ. Build your church up worldwide, Father. Help those in places like Haiti that have great difficulty simply meeting. Build your church up in England where these men lived who wrote this assembly, yet now we have to come in and build little beachheads in cities of Oxford and Cambridge and places like that. Father, the church ebbs, the church flows. The church is never completely pure, but Father, help us to improve on all those aspects of this particular church and grow us in your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.